This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the award-winning podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, so I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. On episode 20 of the podcast, listeners, you are in for a real treat. You need to get all the way ready to green light your own ambition because my guest on the show is the Dr. Tamara Pizzoli. Dr. Pizzoli is an African-American author, curator, producer, and publisher. Originally from Texas, she is the mother of four children and has resided in Rome, Italy for over 15 years. As a former kindergarten teacher with a doctorate degree in education, Dr. Pizzoli developed a passion for quality children's literature while reading aloud to her students. In 2013, while living in Italy, she opened a boutique English language school for kids. It was called the English Schoolhouse. Eventually, she converted that school into an independent publishing house after the unexpected loss of her only sister. In just under a decade, she has published over 60 titles with more currently in development. Dr. Pizzoli's most popular books include The Ghanaian Goldilocks, Tallulah the Tooth Fairy CEO, and K is for Kahlo, as in Frida Kahlo. After gaining international attention in print and media for her diverse children's books, Dr. Pizzoli was approached by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in early 2017 and offered a book deal for Tallulah the Tooth Fairy, which was then released by FSG in 2019. Later, film rights for Tallulah the Tooth Fairy were acquired by the Gabrielle Union. To date, Dr. Pizzoli has written books for other major publishers, including Deneen Milner's imprint at Simon & Schuster and HarperCollins. In 2020, Dr. Pizzoli was invited to be a guest speaker as a fairy tale expert at the British Library. And in 2023, the English Schoolhouse completed a licensing and development agreement with Google Assistant. Dr. Pizzoli remains an independent author and publisher with no literary or film agent. When I say that Dr. Tamara Pizzoli is a liberated literary creator, I mean it. And during our conversation, she shares her unconventional path to literary success, self-publishing her own books, and fielding publishing deals with major publishers all on her own terms. Tamara shares the story of how a family tragedy made her push play on getting her first book out into the world, how Kickstarter showed her what was possible with self-publishing, and why she thinks everyone should be self-publishing already. I'm telling you, this is one of the most inspirational episodes I've done to date. It has real actionable advice, and I think you're going to love it. So let's get right to it. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Dr. Tamara Pizzoli. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to chat about all things creative. It's one of my favorite things to talk about is writing. So I am really excited that you're here. But before we get into our conversation, I just want to reiterate to everybody listening why I am so excited. So when I started the Read, Write, and Create platform and podcast, 
I really wanted to basically create a vehicle or an organization to support BIPOC writers. Like I wanted to help BIPOC writers become better writers, to become more confident writers. And I wanted to help them get their stories out into the world. That's not just, it is my catchphrase, but it's also really what I want to do is I want to see more BIPOC writers get their stories published and out to the masses. I really believe that storytelling has the power to change the world. And I think now more than ever, it's so obvious how much we need books and stories that showcase the lived experiences of melanated people. And by the way, everybody listening, I'm working on my terminology. I'm not sure I love BIPOC. Um, So I'm going to be throwing around other words for people of color, colored people, melanated, the melanin rich. So just bear with me on that. Okay. So anyway, I think now more than ever, we really need to see our stories out into the world. And when I say we, I mean, men, women, children of every color, creed, religion, all of that, we need our stories out there. And so I really am, again, trying to do my part to nurture writers to feel the confidence to get their work out there, you know, help them become the best writers they can be. But often the stumbling block is, well, yeah, I have this great book. I wrote this wonderful story, but how do I get it out in the world? Or that is where the obstacle is. And so Tamara has done exactly that. She has bypassed the obstacle. She has figured out how to get her work out into the world in such a unique and bold and badass way without asking permission. And so that's why I really wanted her here to talk about how she approaches publishing, particularly with children's books. It's unique It's interesting, it's powerful, and it's been working. It's been working because she's got the receipts and the books to prove it all. So that's why I'm so excited. I want you to be excited. So let's get right into it. Tomorrow, the first question I have to ask you, though, before we get into your publishing roles, is the very obvious fact that you live in Rome, Italy. So I think we need to just get that cleared up first. How does a woman who's born and raised in Texas end up in Rome, Italy? My go-to answer for that is always, it was an overdramatic reaction to a broken heart. I was in my 20s and found out that the guy that I thought I was going to like marry and ride off into the sunset with cheated on me. And I got this random invitation to move to Rome and I took it. And you stayed. That's the thing. Because usually, I mean, that story is not so unusual, right? I mean, okay, jump off, go to another country, especially Italy of all places. I mean, I don't mean to invoke it, but I'm going to eat, pray, love. Okay. But you stayed. And that's that's a different thing. You know, not only do you stay, you're raising your children there. You've created a life for yourself, like a very unique life. So is there something about Italy that made you say, hey, this is actually where I really belong or where I feel at home? Well, at the beginning, so when I first moved, it was 2007. I had just gotten my doctorate because I was a teacher for a long time in Texas and really just thought that that was going to be like education. Higher ed was going to be my path. And so with the broken heart, I moved here, met my ex-husband walking in a street, like very, very Roman story, and fell in love and got married six months later. These are all like 20s stories, you know, (laughs) things that you just do in your 20s. You just get married. You just, yeah, quit your job. Anyhow, so we actually moved back to Texas for two years. And my eldest son, who's now 14, was born in Texas. Got to Texas, 
And I had already changed so much because I think what a lot of people who move abroad find, um, even if it's just for a short stint, is that something, hopefully you leave something wherever you go, something of yourself, like contribute in some way. But also what definitely happens, I found, is that wherever you are seeps into you as well. And so when my ex and I moved back to Texas, I found that I changed so much. It just didn't really fit anymore. And I had um, a really unfortunate experience with being rushed back to work after I had my son. And I knew that it wasn't going to be sustainable, at least for us at that moment. So my ex-husband also was like a wilting flower in Texas. Like, he just couldn't do it. (laughs) So when he said he wanted to move back, I said, okay. And now Rome and I are like, we're together. We just get each other. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So if anybody sees the work that you create, it almost feels like Rome is where you should be because your work is art. I mean, to say children's books almost feels like that's not exactly it because your each book feels like a work of art. So your publishing company is called the English Schoolhouse because I know you started it as a schoolhouse, like as a English language school. Can you talk a little bit about when you wrote your first children's book? So the first book is called The Ghanaian Goldilocks. And I really had and still have this affinity for Ghana and Ghanaians in general. I'd spent a lot of time there through said ex. And I, I don't know, it's like I had my first son And we were at my ex-husband's mother's house, so my ex-mother-in-law's house. And my son was little at the time. He was maybe two or three. I don't know. But he had this big, big curly afro. And we would go to the beach so it would get blonde on the tips. And he had gone into his uncle's. His uncle would stay in, like, he stayed in this small house outside of my ex-mother-in-law's house. So it was kind of like his apartment, let's say. And so Noah, my eldest son, went into his uncle Mateo's house and just started touching things he had no business touching and tasting things he had no business tasting. And so when Mateo, his uncle, told me, I looked at Noah and I said, well, who do you think you are, Goldilocks? And he just started laughing hysterically. And that was the inspiration. Then the story just started coming to me. And what I like to tell people is, One of the best pieces of advice I can give to people is to catch the story when it wants to be caught. A lot of times, at least for me, the best ideas are very bossy. So I found myself getting up and writing, working on it at like six o'clock in the morning when I didn't have to be up until 730 or something or sneaking, kind of like catching a second to like just write down ideas. It just wouldn't leave me alone. And that's how, yeah, that's how I wrote it. And based it in Ghana as this little boy who is a bit naughty. Was your ex-husband from Ghana? No. So there's many exes. But the ex who had the hand in me moving here, let's say, that's the Ghanaian. And then the ex-husband is Italian. Okay, I got you. I got you. So you wrote this book. And I love that idea. I often talk about ideas. I read Elizabeth Gilbert's big magic. And she talks about ideas coming to like find you. And if you don't act on them, they will find somebody else to bring them to life. And I love that idea of you saying that your idea came to you and it was bossy and you got it down on the page. So did you know you were writing a children's book or did it come to you as like a short story or really you saw it as a children's book from the beginning? 
I knew it was going to be a children's book because, again, another important piece is that I taught kindergarten in the state. So, you know, a staple of kindergarten is you have read aloud time. And I had a huge collection. Like most teachers, I would spend my own money on classroom materials. And most of my money went to half price books in Texas. It's a great store where, you know, you just have books for 75% off. And I would spend so much money in there buying and rebuying books. It was great. I had like my own little checkout system in our classroom. Yeah, there was only children's books at the beginning for me that I was interested in, in writing. And so when you finished writing it, did you decide to try to get it published through traditional publishing? Or were you straight up like, okay, I'm gonna just get this out in the world. What did you do to get it published? That was never consideration for me. I, at the time, had a friend who was in Rome, who has since moved back. She moved back many years ago, named Amelia. And I also think a lot of people, like the signs are always there to point you in the easiest direction to go, to get to where you want to get to. But Amelia, who I didn't, I remember I didn't talk to her very much on the phone, but she happened to call me and I was so excited about the story. I was like, I want to show that, let's meet. And so I showed it to her what I was working on. And she was like, oh, you know, you could like put this on Kickstarter and and like fund it. You could do it yourself. And she told me about self-publishing. She was really cool. She had something, I don't know if she still does it, called Mobius. And it was, her name's Amelia Terrapin. It was something with like teaching children dance concepts through movement. She was an ex-ballet dancer. Really fascinating. So I think also that's another important component that was there for me from the beginning and still is a staple in my creative process is being around other creative people that think in interesting and innovative ways who are also open to sharing tips with you. Did you illustrate it yourself, that book? Did you have the illustrations yourself? No, no, I don't. If I could draw, I would be obnoxious. Like I would have like 500 books published if I could draw. No, I had my school at the time called the English Schoolhouse. It was a language school for children. And I was wasting time like online, I think it was on Twitter, and this really cool illustration of the hip hop alphabet popped up. And it was this guy in Essex in the UK. And I just like hit him on Twitter and was like, I knew from his style that it would work perfectly with what I was writing. And so he quoted me like 5,000 pounds, which was an obnoxious amount of money for me to even conceive of especially after having just opened the school and that wasn't going to happen. But I proposed, if you do the cover for me, having just had that conversation with Amelia, who suggested Kickstarter, I think I could fundraise it. And so I did that in 2013. And I had just opened my school in 2013 as well. So you got that first book produced through a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, you can. It's still up there if you Google like my name and Kickstarter, the Ghanaian Goldilocks Kickstarter, because Kickstarter never takes those projects down. So you got your first taste of self-publishing through crowdfunding. And I love that you found your illustrator on Twitter. See, this is what I'm talking about. I love this entrepreneurial creative energy around getting your stories out into the world. So did that book sell well? Like, how did the Kickstarter end up? Like, what was the response? And who was interested in getting the Ghanaian Goldilocks? So the fundraiser was greenlit. I, the goal was 5,000. I think we did 5,900. So I had like a little change to spare. 
And I remember that December, the illustrator and I had such a great relationship at the time that he was like, okay, um, I did an accompanying book, F is for Fufu. And he only charged me 150 pounds or something. It was a blessing. But I think a lot of times artists sign on for projects from the heart. And that was definitely one of those decisions that you could tell he was doing it because, I mean, the first book is like dedicated to him and everybody who contributed to the Kickstarter. So it was definitely like a like a feel-good project. So that really showed you what was possible for your own writing, your own producing, if you will. I don't know, publishing maybe is the better word. Well, I didn't actually publish it because I didn't answer your question. I didn't publish it until the following summer. And by that point, something very, very pivotal had happened in my life. I lost my only sibling and sister in March of 2014. So I didn't publish the book, even though I had the files and everything. I didn't put it out until July. And once I did, it got a lot of attention. I think it's because of a few reasons. We can go into that later, but I just wanted to make sure I answered that question. I mean, I know that your sister's passing, and I'm very sorry to hear that. I heard another podcast that you were on where you talked about that, and I don't want you to have to go through that story over again, but I know that when massive things happen in our lives that make us kind of reevaluate what's important, things shift. It's like the whole universe shifts. So talk to me a little bit about that shift for you. I know you closed the school, you got the book out. What was it that you were like thinking that, okay, this is what my life is supposed to be about then. It's not supposed to be about running this school. I am a creative. I am going to do something completely different. Can you talk a little bit about that shift then that made you say, yeah, I'm going to put this book out. I'm publishing the book. I'm not going to be an English language school teacher. What was that shift for you? I just was getting ideas and I started writing and writing and writing and writing. And just the first maybe eight or so books, those are all illustrated by the same illustrator who did the Ghanaian Goldilocks. Like I just started any idea that I had, I was doing it and just putting it out there. So I converted my school. I closed the school definitely in July of 2014 and started publishing full-time, writing and publishing. I have one of my very best friends, my sorority sister, my homegirl for life. Her name is Frenchair Gardner. She'll be so happy. I shouted her out and she's amazing at PR, just a natural connector and hired her to start like doing PR for me because you can't do everything. My mentor, Tom, says if you're prepared to do everything, you're prepared to do nothing. So yeah, I had like help with the things that do not come easily to me, like emailing, you know. <laughs> and one of the first blogs that picked up the Ganyan Goldilocks was one of your previous guests, Deneen Milner. She featured it on My Brown Baby and... um Frenchie, my assistant, and I, now she's also an assistant and also writes children's books herself. We went to Harlem Book Fair. We, you know, we just jumped in and and tried. And then, like I said, the books started getting traction. But by then I had the Ghani Goldilocks, F is for Fufu, K is for Kahlo, B is for breakdancing. I had a long run of like alphabet books 
because being a former kindergarten teacher, like why is A always for Apple and B for ball? Like that's a really great opportunity to expose kids to art, like you said before, and beauty and concepts through the alphabet. So I just started green lighting myself, honestly. I started green lighting myself. I think everybody should pick that one. That's like going to be the tagline on this episode. I started green lighting myself. I love that. And what was the learning curve for you, though, to actually get a book published, like to publish it yourself? Like how long did it take you? You don't have to give us all the details, but like how long did it take you to figure out like what platform do you use? How do you get a distributor? How do you get your books out to X, Y, and Z? Did you go through a lot of different options or you just picked one and ran with it? No, it's always been KDP for me. I haven't done any other platform and it's pretty, it's a really simple process. So, and then again, I'm very happy to pay someone to do what I'm not good at doing. So the first illustrator would do all the formatting for me, you know, to get the little sizing because those programs can be persnickety. So all the little, this size, trim size has to be 0.2. There are people who like delight in that kind of stuff. That makes me want to, I don't know, just quit and have a drink, you know, but there are people who love details of that sort. So finding them and allowing them to fill in the holes as a creative that you may not easily fill is really paramount. So smart. I hope everybody's taking notes here. Okay, so what Tamara just said is the reason why people fail or they just think it's too much because it is too much. It is too much to do it all. She was like, I found somebody who loves the things that I hate or the things that I'm not good at instead of getting stuck, which is where a lot of people, it happens, right? They get stuck because they're like, oh my Lord, I don't even know what font point or margins. Like, I don't know what that means. I don't speak this language. Ah, And then they stop. Not only don't I know, but I don't care. I don't even want to see it. (laughs) There's a difference, though, between knowing you don't like it, you don't want to do it, and then doing something about it, like finding somebody who does instead of stopping. People get stuck at that exact point when they don't know how to do something. Rather than getting help, they just quit. I'm not set up like that at all. I have a lot of things that I may struggle with, but that's not one. I love the satisfaction of finishing something. I want to see it finished. And what motivated you to, obviously you kind of hinted at it that, you know, as a former kindergarten teacher, you understood how important literature is and also the opportunities to get more diverse stories out there. Did you have like an agenda as you were writing these books or was it really just, hey, I have an idea. Let's see what happens with that. It was that. And I don't diminish my own ideas. I don't poo-poo my ideas. Like, oh, that's cute. But you know, that would be a good idea. No, like if it's coming to me, I'm catching it. I'm going to honor it and I'm going to do my best to see it through. And I think especially, I know that your audience is global and it's not limited to Black folks, but speaking directly about the Black experience and the Black creative experience, we give away so much content and don't monetize. We give away so much genius, so much joy, so much creativity, so much innovation. So no, you like, I want to be paid for mine. I want to be paid for mine and I want to be paid well for it. And I want, I want the lion's share of it. That's another reason why traditional publishing, I've landed at a lot of the major publishers and I'm grateful for that. And it's an experience, but I've not done so in a traditional path. And I really I'm a huge proponent of if the work is good enough, it will get noticed and then they can't deny you. You have to be consistent enough, though, and put it out and believe in it because you're greenlighting yourself, right? So 
you have to stand 10 toes down on it. Like, no, this is good enough. I know it's good enough. Nobody has to tell me that it's good enough. There's no agenda for me in mind as I write. Some of my favorite books that I have, it tickled me when I was writing it. (laughs) It made me laugh. And so if it made me laugh, then I would bet that maybe other people would find it witty too. And then you go on Goodreads and it's like, don't read this book. This book ain't shit. (laughs) And that's fine. That's why we don't get on Goodreads, right? That's not a healthy, it's not a healthy place to be. No, but I do about once a year in my illustrator that I'm working with most consistently right now. Recently, I sent him screenshots. I was drinking wine. And that was like my entertainment for the evening is just like screenshotting all the negative reviews for Tallulah. And (laughs) I mean, they crack me up. You got to do what you got to do, right? You don't ever read the reviews? No, of course I do. And then I get sad or (laughs) I get angry. I'm still talking about a review from 2009. I don't think it's healthy. But I took a very good class once with Elizabeth Nunez, the writer, and she said she never reads her reviews because it doesn't do anything for her. She has her own critics that she trusts to help her be a better writer. But she's like, what does Jerome123 know about writing (laughs) that I should take his work? Nothing, right? So why am I doing that to myself? Because we are humans and we're creatives and we have sensitive hearts. So no, I don't read my reviews in that way. In the New York Times, I will read that review. Other than that, I'm I'm not reading the Goodreads reviews. So... Next question, as you actually talked about the illustrator that you're working with, I noticed in your bio, you call yourself a producer, a curator, an author. I'm wondering if you can talk us through a little bit more about first how you identify. I've heard you call yourself a creative, a writer, just in this conversation, but you write the story and then how do you find your illustrators? And then you're like saying you also find somebody else to maybe upload it or to format it. Is that what you mean by curator and producer? Talk to me a little bit about how you identify and how this process works over the course of 60 books. I identify as a creative because I work across a lot of different disciplines and I primarily write children's books, write fairy tales, but I also curate art within my stories, but also outside of my stories. I've worked with an artist and curated physical shows with paintings on the walls. And I love doing that too. Um, Producer, because when you make things, you produce. But I've also produced a documentary shows and development phase for me, meaning like on my computer based on my stories that I would like to see adapted for TV or film. And then, you know, also had... Tallulah optioned into a film and am a producer on that. I think that covers all that. Yeah. Yeah. And when you put a book together, do you consider yourself the author and producer of the book because you are bringing, you know, the writer, you, illustrator, maybe the formatter? It's like an event you're producing, essentially. Absolutely. It's like building anything. I'm the producer by default also because I'm the publisher. So that's bringing the book into production. But as far as just how my process is, so usually it's I write the story. I can see the story in my head. And so I have ideas for how the setup should be, the layout, which, for example, in traditional publishing, usually the writer writes and that's it. Thank you very much. Here's your money, baby. And now we're going to pass this on to the art team. They have a whole team. I remember like the first project I had with 
Deneen, I asked her like, oh, you know, if you want some ideas, she was like, sweet pea, <laughs> I've got this. <laughs> we have the art team over here. I was like, oh, okay, you don't need, I'll just go back to my desk over here then. It's a completely different process because in my realm, I oversee all of that. I know what I want to see on the page. Let's take Tallulah, for example. And the art is fantastic. The artist did his thing. And he was amazing. But the art direction is mine. For people who aren't sure, this is Tallulah the Tooth Fairy, which is yes. one of Tamara's most popular books. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the movie and all that in a minute. But go on. I just wanted people to know. You keep saying Tallulah. That's the one. Yes. Tallulah the Tooth Fairy CEO. So it's this Black woman billionaire who doesn't smile a lot. And a lot of people don't know she's she is the Tooth Fairy of all tooth fairies. Um, and she has an Afro, but you know, I was very specific. I knew I wanted the tooth fairy to look like one of my best friends. Who's also my third son's godmother and, you know, collecting the photos of her, what her outfits look like, what her glasses look like. Her therapist has kinky twists. You know, we see her from the back. She's writing notes that say like, you know, possible delusions of grandeur. I'm very detailed about what I want to see <laughs> on each page. And now that I'm 60-something books in, if I have a rapport with the artist, with the illustrator, because I worked with at least, I don't know, 10, 12 over the course of the last nine years, but it's like any relationship, then trust sets in. And so if the illustrator obviously is taking my notes, but they have an idea and they send it and I like it, and it's different from what I've suggested, we can go with that. I'm wondering if your position in Rome impacts your storytelling in the sense of the art. Is there a different kind of access to artists being in Rome than if you were maybe in Texas or maybe any other place in the United States? Absolutely, on one hand. And then on another hand, I work with artists from different places, different countries who've never been to Rome. And the first illustrator, Phil, I never, ever, ever even had a conversation with him ever. Not even, we never like saw each other. He was like the whiz. It was incredible. <laughs> and I liked it that way. <laughs> but we just got each other over email and he's like, got it. I can, and I would send references anyway. And I found him, like I said, on Twitter, a lot of the high art, like the really, really gorgeous, just, oh, looks like it belongs in a museum. That's Elena Tomasi Ferroni. And she is an artist that comes from a noble artistic family here. Her grandfather is a famous painter, her daddy. And I don't think it's just here. I think everyone, like if you have a gift for writing, more than likely someone else in your family probably does too. Like I very sincerely believe in generational gifts and familial gifts. So, you know, her family's is art, basically. The artist who did Tallulah the Tooth Fairy CEO <laughs> when the England my publishing house was a school, he did the website design for it. And his aesthetic is very clean, very simple. And so I approached him about doing a book with me. And he was like, no, because I don't do that. <laughs> and now he has like a whole agent in New York. You know what I mean? Like these are just, yeah, this is how it goes. It's how the magic happens. You've brought this up a couple of times, and I, I just love the last line of your official bio where it says, the English Schoolhouse completed a licensing and development agreement with Google Assistant in 2023. Dr. Brazzoli remains an independent author and published 
to date with no literary or film agent. And I read that. I was like, go ahead, girl. And I like that you put it in there. Like that's part of who you are is an independent creative. But you mentioned this and let's dial back to the movie deal that Gabrielle Union optioned the rights for Tallulah the Tooth Fairy. And you've got I don't even know what a licensing agreement with Google Assistant. I don't know what that means. I'm like, I don't know. Is Tallulah the Tooth Fairy going to tell you what to do on your Google Assistant? I don't know. But this is the part that I want everybody to like really listen to. Because you've said this throughout this conversation so far, that you don't do things the conventional way, that you're not waiting for, that you greenlit your own products. Tell me why that is important to you and that that you are proactively acting that way as opposed to the, oh, I tried traditional and they wouldn't have me. So I had to like do it this way. Even with the mainstream publishers coming to you and saying like, hey, we'd like to publish your books. You weren't like, close down the English schoolhouse. We don't need this anymore because I have arrived now that FSG or Simon & Schuster wants to bring out my books. Tell me about your mindset and your philosophy about being independent as a creative. It's a really layered answer. The short of it is I did make the mistake of thinking that I had arrived when FSG came for Tallulah. Because I think anyone who writes, most people I know, at least that's the dream, right? Is that you you get on with a major publisher, everybody talks about the top five, and you know, and then these careers are launched, but I have learned through my own personal experience that you don't have to play the game when you own it. And publishing is a game of ownership. So many people don't get that. And also you don't like two things can be true at the same time. So for me, approaching storytelling from a sacred space, the stories that come to me aren't even for someone else to decide whether or not they're to be told or printed. I'm never going to abdicate that luxury and that privilege that we have today that our ancestors did not have. If you can publish anything you want today, and it's free to do it, aside from the fact that you're going to have to invest for the artist and you're going to have to do the thing and maybe the editing and you have to do then the formatting and all that. Yes, all that's a financial investment. But as far as like the actual act of doing it, That's free. So what is stopping you really? And you get to own it. And just like in any other business venture, people can come in and say, oh, I like that here. Let me take that off of you and swoop it up. And I thought in 20, I think Macmillan came in 2017, 16, 17. They didn't put out Tallulah again. They didn't republish her until 2019. So also, you know, there's these... They're like woolly mammoths, these publishers. Like they make these grand moves. And when they're made, you feel them. But damn, like to walk from here to here, it's going to take a while, you know? Whereas when you're independent, you're like a little lizard. You can move, you can go undetected a lot of times. And then before you know it, people are like, well, wait a minute. Now, wait, now you own that. So you need to come talk to me about the movie rights, right? It's a different feeling. And it's not... It's definitely a conversation to have. It's its own conversation, and I feel very passionately about it. But publishing is a game of ownership. Tom Kirkhart, my uh, mentor, who I met when I was recording The Ghanaian Goldilocks. I record audiobooks for all of my books as well. And landed in his pocket 
and, you know, one of the most fortunate meetings I've had in my life. But he told me from the day he met me, own yourself. Make sure you own yourself. Mm. And it's such a a freeing thought. It's a freeing mindset to look at publishing that way, that you have this possibility, this potential. And I think that's what, you know, as a person who has been traditionally published, I've never done self-publishing, but I am chomping at the bit to get my work out there. And I look at it, like you just said, it's a freedom, it's a possibility, it's liberation. And it's like, why would I wait? I mean, I want to make this very clear. I very much believe in traditional publishing, but I also, it's not an either or. It's a both and. You can do all the things. Certain projects are meant for traditional publishing. Certain projects are meant for self-publishing. And certain will get to both by default. Exactly. And the discerning creator knows where and how to get that work out into the world. And like I said, when I started, my goal with this brand, with Read, Write, and Create, is to help as many BIPOC writers get their stories out into the world. And you do that by understanding that there's more than one way to do that. And greenlighting your own projects is a way to do that. And I think having the right mindset about it, having the right attitude about it, bringing the right resources to the table... That's the secret. It's not, can you do it? It's how you do it, how you go about doing it. Definitely. And I think for my stories, even though I've used a lot of different illustrators, Elena, who's the one who does the gorgeous high art, told me somehow when you put your body of work together, you can still tell it's all you. So for me, having a body of work that's quite sizable in a short amount of time, you know, 60 something books in nine years Being small allows you to do that because you're not having to go through 50 yeses and 20 no's and seeing how this pans out and we have to meet on. No, I think this is a great idea. I have the stories and this is what we finna do. And that's that. But then, you know, you also have to take the backlash, of course, because it all falls on you. There's not, you can't do a bunch of pink finger pointing about if something really goes terribly wrong, but thank goodness nothing has to date. I don't want to spend too much time on the business side of things, but I'm just curious, are you still using your friend to do marketing for you and PR? What's your like mechanism to get the word out about your books? She does it when she's not um, like marketing her own book, which, you know, which I love because you get to evolve, right? But I paid her the other day to put something on my website. I don't know what the password is. It's somewhere, but like she knows. So yeah, I sent her a message like, hey, can you update this real quick? And she did it. But now it's like, okay, certain partnerships give a platform to my my big engine now that has, that was a little engine that could, you know? My big engine that does. That's what I feel like with my stories. So the licensing and development with Google, they approached me, it was 2020. And some, bless her, I don't know who she was, but some exec over there said, y'all should look at the English Schoolhouse stories. And they were looking for diversifying on their Google Assistant platform, diversifying their stories. And I had the content. So they were like, you know, let's take all this and license and develop it for this platform and then license that and then give you X amount to develop even more stories. So again, very unconventional, but I retained the rights. So it's a different game. And I 
I don't know why everybody doesn't do it. I feel like, you know, like, like the Mary Kay lady, like you got to get on this cream, y'all. You got to, <laughs> why aren't y'all using the eye cream? Like I told you. So that was actually my kind of final official question was what advice would you give writers then, particularly children's book writers, if they are like wanting to get their stories out into the world? Not about like step one, step two, step three, but like mindset wise, what advice would you give them? So I'm a big fan of Little Wayne. The first would be no ceilings. The second would be just to greenlight yourself. You just have to do it. You have to start and then delight and relish the process of seeing a dream come true, of seeing the evolution. I love the creative process. So I think also it's very therapeutic, especially for women of color to write and to just like see what comes out, what's in there dormant, just waiting for you to access it and to bring it forth. It's so much fun and it's so healing. Again, I don't know why everybody doesn't do it. What are you waiting for is what I would say. Mm, Love it. What are you waiting for? Thank you. That's the best right there. What are you waiting for? That's all you need to hear. Dr. Tamara said, what are you waiting for? Go, get busy, get writing, get producing, get your work out there. And take yourself seriously. Take your ideas seriously. Yes. Don't poo-poo your ideas. There's plenty of people on Goodreads who will poo-poo your ideas for you. You don't need to do it, right? (laughs) And even those are hilarious. I mean, this one with Tallulah, the Tooth Fairy CEO, wrote, don't buy this book, don't read this book. I was like, lady. (laughs) So what is next for you and the English Schoolhouse? What should our listeners be looking for next? I mean, if they haven't heard about you, they obviously need to go look at all of the work you've created. But what's next for you? What is the next thing you want to tackle? So I have a series of stories, short children's book size stories, but based on um, the immigration experience to Italy, like just people from different countries coming and they're really beautiful. I have about six of the eight that I would like. I am very eager to move into development for television, adapting my books for movies, film, just expansion. That's what I'm looking to to see happen and to experience next. And I have some interesting collaborations that are coming up that I can't say fully right now, but soon enough I'll be able to celebrate that. So Well, that's exciting. And that was like such a cliffhanger. Everybody's going to have to tune in for next week's installment. (laughs) Like definitely be following your journey. Where can people follow you? Are you active on the interwebs on any social media forums where people can watch you? I'm on Instagram and it's at Tamara Pizzoli. And I'm on Facebook for like my mother. I don't think anyone cares about (laughs) what I do on Facebook. (laughs) It's like two cats and three turtles and my mother that pressed the like button for me on Facebook. Well, that is awesome. And we will definitely put the links, obviously, to the English Schoolhouse so people can see your books and buy your books. They can buy them directly from you. Is there other places where they can buy the books? Also on Amazon. We thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today and inspiring us. What are we waiting for? Thank you so much, Dr. Tamara Pizzoli. Thank you. It was fun. 
Wasn't that a great interview, you guys? Are you all ready to go launch your own publishing house? I am. Seriously, Tamara's energy, enthusiasm is completely infectious, and I hope you all caught just a bit of all that she was sharing. Here are some key takeaways from our conversation. One, green light your own projects. You don't have to wait for traditional gatekeepers to get your work out into the world. Two, outsource the parts that you don't like or you're not good at when you're thinking about self-publishing. Don't let pesky details derail your progress. Ask for help or pay for help so you can get on with the work of getting your stories into the world. Number three, when the spirit of a story hits you, get it down right away. Don't wait. Number four, surround yourself with other creative people and use their energy and ideas to ignite your own. Number five, you don't have to play the game if you own the rights to your work. I'm not saying, and Dr. Pizzoli was not saying, that self-publishing is always the way to go, but be mindful of who is holding the rights to your work and what power you wield when you own the rights to your intellectual property. At the end of the day, though, the most important thing is that the work you put out in the world has to be good, period. End of story. So chew on that. Think about these takeaways as you think about getting your work out into the world. I hope my conversation with Dr. Tamara Pizzoli left you inspired and motivated to write. I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your literary projects and practice. If you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website at readwriteandcreate.com. That's readwriteandcreate.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for the Read, Write, and Create newsletter which is the first place where you'll find out about my latest classes and creative offerings, as well as job opportunities, residency opportunities, submission possibilities. So be sure to sign up for that on the Read, Write, and Create website. If you're interested in applying to join the Read, Write, and Create Sanctuary, that is the new private membership community for BIPOC women writers who want to get their words out into the world, Add your name to the waitlist so you'll be the first to know when applications go out. The link to sign up is in the show notes. Finally, if you know any other BIPOC writers who might need a creative pep talk, please share the show with them. You can leave a rating or a review for the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so the people who need the show will be able to find the show. Thank you so much. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing and keep creating. <laughs>